Moab had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera summoned and all the troops who were with him from Herosheth of the nations to the Wadi Kishon, Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord threw Sisera, all his charioteers, and all his army into a panic before Barak's assault. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth of the nations, and the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. Meanwhile, Sisera had fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was peace between King Jabin of Hazor and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to greet Sisera and said to him, Come in, my lord. Come in with me. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened a container of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him again. Then he said to her, Stand at the entrance of the tent. If a man comes and asks you, Is there a man here? Say, No. While he was sleeping from exhaustion, Heber's wife, Jael, took a tent peg, grabbed a hammer, and went silently into Sisera. She hammered the peg into his temple and drove it into the ground, and he died. When Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to greet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man you are looking for. So he went in with her, and there was Sisera, lying dead with a tent peg through his temple. That day, God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. The power of the Israelites continued to increase until King Jabin of Canaan, uh, against King Jabin of Canaan until they destroyed him. Chapter 5. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang, When the leaders lead in Israel, when the people volunteer, blessed be the Lord. Listen, kings, pay attention, princes. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, when you came from Seir, when you marched from the fields of Edom, the earth trembled. The skies poured rain, and the clouds poured water. The mountains melted before the Lord. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the main roads were deserted because travelers kept the side roads. Villagers were deserted. They deserted in Israel until I, Deborah, arose a mother in Israel. Israel chose new gods. Then there was a war in the, city great, in the city gates. Not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with the leaders of Israel, with the volunteers of his people. Blessed be the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys, who sit on saddle blankets, who travel on the road, give praise. Let them tell the righteous acts of the Lord. 
the righteous deeds of his villagers in Israel, with the voices of the singers at the watering places. Then the Lord's people went down to the city gate. Awake! Awake, Deborah! Awake! Awake! Sing a song! Arise, Barak, and take your prisoner, son of Abinoam. The survivors came down to the nobles. The Lord's people came down to me against the warriors. Those with their roots in Amalek came from Ephraim. Benjamin came with your people after you. The leaders came down from Ashir. And those who carry a martial staff came from Zebulun. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Issachar was with Barak. They were under his leadership in the valley. There was a great searching of heart among the clans of Reuben. Why did you sit among the sheep pens, listening to the playing of pipes for the flocks? There was a great searching of heart among the clans of Reuben. Gilead remained beyond the Jordan. Dan, why did you linger at the ships? Asher remained at the seashore and stayed in his harbor. The people of Zebulun defied death. Naphtali, also on the heights of the battlefield. Kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan at Ta'anak by the waters of Megiddo. But they did not plunder their silver. The stars fought from the heavens. The stars fought with Sisera from their path. The river Kishon swept them away. The ancient river, the river Kishon, march on my soul in strength. The horse's hooves then hammered the galloping, galloping of his stallions. Curse Morose, says the angel of the Lord. Bitterly curse her inhabitants, for they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord with the warriors. Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. She is most blessed among tent-dwelling women. He asked for water. She gave him milk. She brought him cream in a majestic bowl. She reached for a tent peg, her right hand, for a workman's hammer. Then she hammered Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. He collapsed. He fell. He lay down between her feet. He collapsed. He fell between her feet. Where he collapsed, there he fell, dead. Sisera's mother looked through the window. She peered through the lattice, crying out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why don't I hear the hoofbeats of his horses? Her wisest princesses answer her. She even answers herself. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil? A girl or two for each warrior. The spoil of colored garments for Sisera. The spoil of an embroidered garment or two for my neck. Lord, may all your enemies perish as Sisera did. May those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its strength. And the land had peace for 40 years. Let's pray. Lord, in order for us to understand these words, in in order for us to be able to follow you, we need your Spirit's help to open our eyes to see our ears to hear, to be able to see wonderful things in your word. We need your help. So we ask for your Spirit's help this morning. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. I would venture to guess that I have the weirdest Mother's Day sermon text. I mean, Judges 4 through 5 is a strange story. Not only is it a strange story, I didn't plan it. Today is Mother's Day, and we are reading a text with three mothers. You see Deborah, who's described as a mother of Israel. Hello. You also see, um, you get to see J.L., who behaves like a mother in caring for Sisera, whose name literally translates to child, clothing her with a blanket and giving her milk. And lastly, you see Sisera's mom waiting for her son to return from war, even though he has died because a tent peg has been driven through his head. This is a weird passage. I'm going to try my best to overview it to the best of my ability. So this is going to be the main idea this morning. Obey God. Obey him. Obey God. There are going to be three aspects to obeying God that we can see in this passage. Firstly, you remember God's commands. You remember God's commands. Secondly, you see God's deliverance. You see God's deliverance. And thirdly, you celebrate God's victory. You celebrate God's victory. We're going to begin with remember God's commands. Let's look down to chapter 4, verse 1. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. We've heard this a few times now. The Israelites do what's evil in the sight of the Lord again. They do it again. And notice a few things here. First thing to notice is that sin still persists. Sin persists. Even though Ehud, their leader, had died, sin still persisted. Just because they obeyed God in the past in conquering the king Eglon, did not mean that they were going to continue to obey God that day after Ehud had died. Just because you obeyed yesterday doesn't mean that you're going to uh, continue to obey tomorrow. Just because you obeyed yesterday doesn't mean that you won't disobey tomorrow. Just because you obeyed yesterday doesn't mean that you won't disobey today. Notice also that this evil was done in the sight of the Lord. Even though Israel forgot the Lord, the Lord did not forget them. Every single sin that Israel committed was committed in the sight of the Lord. God saw all of it. Friends, we are experts at minimizing our own failures and maximizing the failures of others. I dealt with this in a conflict last night with my sister. I had to confront my own failures. And while I tried to talk myself out of that hole, at some point I had to drop the shovel. We are experts at ignoring our flaws and maximizing the flaws of those around us. But the reality is is that God doesn't just listen to our testimony. He sees reality. He sees everything that we do. See, there's Three sides to every single conflict or sin that you commit. There could be your side. There's a side of those that you may wrong. And then there's God's side. And he sees everything with crystal clarity. And Israel has no excuse. 
They do what's evil in the Lord's sight again. Let's read from verse 2. So the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth of the nations. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jabin had 900 iron chariots, and he harshly oppressed them 20 years. God sold them to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigns in Hazor. And what's fascinating about this story, this king that's being brought up, is that this king appears in Joshua chapter 11. It's like a callback. Right? It's like a superhero movie where you finally defeat the bad guy and the bad guy shows up in the next movie. And the Israelites in Joshua 11 had fought this king and won. In fact, the way that Joshua describes their victories, that he says this, he says, they struck down everyone in it with a sword, completely destroying them. He left no one alive. Then he burned Hazor. I mean, that is complete decimation. He left no one alive. He completed that task. And yet, King Jabin is back. And he's back for blood. In fact, he conquers Israel. He takes over. You see, just because you conquered God's enemies yesterday doesn't mean they won't be back today. You can completely destroy King Jabin And he'll be back tomorrow. And his commander, Sisera, is the one who's living in Herosheth of the nations, which is a region in Galilee. And and so Israel cries out to the Lord because of Jabin's 900 iron chariots. And Jabin harshly oppresses them for 20 years. Now, we don't think much about iron chariots today. You don't see iron chariots in the Middle East or in other aspects of warfare. But iron chariots in that day were really overpowered. They were amazing. I mean, if you were to have an army of just men, and you were to have an army with iron chariots, you can have a lot more done. I mean, men have to walk and run and then fight on foot. And that's tiring. When you're fighting with a guy one-on-one, mano-a-mano, like there's lots of parts of the body that you can fight. But what happens with the iron chariot is now... I'm not running anymore. I'm just standing in this little carriage thing. And now this horse is doing all the running for me, which means I have a ton of energy. Not only that, if I'm going to fight a man, he can't really hit me because I'm surrounded by a metal cage that prevents from be- them from being able to strike me with their sword. And all I do is I ride on this horse carriage thing behind them, and I get to play hack-a-slash. No one's able to hit me, and I'm just reaching down and hacking off their heads from the top. Iron chariots are super overpowered. And so it makes sense that Jabin's chariots would provide this huge advantage in taking over. And so the Israelites cry out to the Lord because they're not able to do it. And so far, it's typical of all the other stories of the judges that we've heard so far. I mean, Israel falls away. Lord sells them over to a, a pagan king. And then that king harshly rules over them. And then Israel cries out to the Lord. This happens over and over and over again. But then something changes in this story. Usually, the wording, if you remember from Ehud and, and Othniel before, is that the Lord raises up a deliverer to save the Israelites. But that doesn't happen here. 
Instead, the story jumps to a completely different character. It jumps to Deborah. Let's read from verse 4. Deborah, a prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to settle disputes. The story cuts to Deborah. And she's found to be judging or, or ruling the people of Israel in her area. It describes Deborah as this prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth, which means lightning or, or thunder. And the Israelites would come up to her to settle disputes. And lots can be said about Deborah and her role in the book of Judges. And the implications of, of Deborah's leadership for women today. And some are going to claim that Deborah gives grounds because she's ruling in Israel at this time. She's a marvelous example of other females being able to lead. Uh, in which Israel's able to flourish under the leadership of women. And for me to talk about this topic right now, right after I read two exhausting chapters especially in this climate, about Deborah in the book of Judges, is like me trying to dodge 50,000 laser beams. So I'm going to give it my best shot. Okay. I don't think that this case is a case of applauding um, right female leadership in all cases. I don't think that's the case. I think Deborah is actually an exemplary leader. I think she's certainly equipped to accomplish this task. And I don't think that Deborah did anything wrong in this story in particular. But I think what Deborah's leadership points to isn't so much the exaltation of women over men in society or even equivalence of women to men in the roles in society, but actually the condemnation of infantile men who in the spiritual development are the equivalent of babies unable to change their own diapers. Scattered throughout the entire story. There are a lot of clues in this passage to indicate that there's something seriously wrong with what's going on in Israel at this time. But to begin, in chapter 5, verse 7, Deborah, uh, just a clue to point to Deborah not necessarily being a a sole leader in this text. And in chapter 5, verse 7, Deborah doesn't describe herself as a savior of Israel or even as a deliverer of Israel. Instead, Deborah is described as a mother of Israel seems that her role is more gender specific in terms of what she's trying to do. Secondly, the pagan king is never described as being delivered into Deborah's hands. Right? So normally the judge has the pagan king delivered into their hands. So, so King Cushan Rishatham or Aram Naharam is delivered into the hands of Othniel. Right? Or King Eglon of Moab is delivered into the hands of Ehud. But in this story, um, King Jabin of Canaan is never delivered into Deborah's hands which is a huge vacancy in terms of the pattern of the story. And third, and this is probably the biggest one, and the one that I I might get the most laser beams for, is that uh, female leadership in the Old Testament is not correlated with blessing. Um, It's actually correlated as a symptom of poor leadership and a condemnation of the nations. So I'm not going to be the one who says this. I'm just going to read Isaiah chapter 3, 11 through 12. It says this. It says, Woe to the wicked! It will go badly for them, for what they have done will be done to them. And then he describes the evil that's being done. Youth oppress my people, and women rule over them. My people, your leaders, mislead you. They confuse the direction of your paths. So God's speaking in Isaiah 3, and a symptom of poor leadership in Israel is that women are ruling over the people. 
Now, I don't think that verses like these in the Old Testament have much bearing on whether we think that a woman is capable or qualified to be president. But it does let us know how the Old Testament perceives women leading in society. Is that something to celebrate here? It's actually indicative of something worse. It's indicative of the poor state of society. At the same time, I don't want to make it sound like I'm being anti-woman with my description of this. Um, This text is not anti-woman. It's anti-bad men. Notice where Deborah is ruling in Judges 4. It says that he's ruling in the hills between Ramah and Bethel. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is in the temple in Bethel, over there, on the hill. But Deborah is prophesying, not in the temple like she likely would be if she was a prophetess. She's actually prophesying outside of the city. She's prophesying outside of the temple, away from them. And the reason why she's likely doing that is because Israel is not in a good place. Israel is doing what's evil in the Lord's sight. And whenever Israel does what's evil in the Lord's sight in the book of Judges, it always involves them worshiping idols. And so they're likely worshiping Baal, the God of thunder, which means that even the prophets, even in the temple of the Lord, are likely worshiping false gods. And so Deborah doesn't teach in there because she doesn't associate herself with those so-called prophets that were likely false prophets in Bethel. Deborah instead plants herself outside of the camp. Not because she's trying to start some kind of feminist uprising, but because she is rightfully rejecting corrupt leadership from unworthy men. Those men were leading Israel astray, and Deborah, being a godly woman, is saying no. So let me make something absolutely clear. A, a Christian view of male leadership, right, in, in a, a disposition for men to protect, lead, and provide for their families or in, for women in their appropriate context. That does not mean that women must follow men in every single scenario. That's not what it means. In the cases in which men are leading women astray, or leading them to disobey the Lord, or if men are trying to lead outside of their appropriate context, women are called, as you can see from this passage, to hold their ground and reject those evils. That doesn't mean that that women are trying to subvert the right role of men in doing that. It's actually right for women to do that. You may have seen in the news recently, um, uh, about Josh Duggar and his horrific crimes against children made in the image of God. And one of the ways that, that this terrible man had been able to get away with his sin was by domineering his wife into what he considered to be biblical submission right, in not disclosing his terrible crimes and sin. So let me make this absolutely clear. That is wrong. That is wrong. Biblical woman, womanhood is not about accepting all male leadership in all categories at all times without question. That's not what it is. Biblical womanhood, as defined by John Piper, is, quote, a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to women's differing relationships, end quote complicated definition, 
A lot of qual- qualifiers are there for a reason. That also means, by extension, if I were to kind of go on to the flip side of that, that means that biblical womanhood involves a freeing disposition to rebuke, reject, and stifle sinful strength and leadership from unworthy ways, in ways inappropriate to women's differing relationships. Right? So women affirm when men are doing it in godly ways in their appropriate context, and they should reject it when men are doing it in ungodly ways, in inappropriate contexts. Now, does that mean that male leadership must be absolutely perfect in order to warrant submission and following in any scenario? No, that's not what it means. But there is a huge chasm between sinful leadership and imperfect leadership. There's a giant chasm between those two. So we want to make sure that we distinguish between those two. Okay. So wives are... to submit to their husbands as to the Lord, according to Ephesians 5. Which means that if the husband, or if men, are leading women away from the Lord, that the woman should not follow him. Don't follow that. That's a terrible idea. And let me say while we're on the subject, if you have concerns about male leadership in your life, talk to the members here at this church that you trust. Especially tell the pastors. Abuse of authority is a terrible thing. It's detestable to God. And we want to be here to listen, to help, and to support in all the ways necessary. So please, I know it's incredibly difficult, but we want to be able to be here for you. So please talk to us. Talk to me. Talk to one of the pastors that are here. Okay. I hopefully just gymnastic flip through like a bunch of different terrible laser beams that could have hit me. If you have issues though, and there are tone ways I could have said this incorrectly, talk to me, email me, or talk to me after the service. Happy to talk about that more. So Deborah is a leader where no one else would. And it's made even clearer when you look at the utter buffoon that is Barak. And we're about to read about him right now in verse 6. Judges 4, 6. She summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, deploy the troops on Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the Naphtalites and Zebulonites? Then I will lure sister a commander of Jabin's army, his chariots, and his infantry at the Wadi Kaishan to fight against you, and I will hand him over to you. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Deborah, prophetess, summons Barak and tells him that the Lord has commanded him to go and defeat Sisera and his army. And the Lord will hand Sisera over to him. But Barak, unlike the judges before him, there's a disruption in the pattern, doesn't obey all the way right away with a happy heart. Instead, he replies with his own condition. Deborah has to come with him. Which means, Barak wasn't really trusting the Lord. What Barak is telling Deborah is, listen, I'm going to go do this fight right, against this insane military army. But if I'm going down, you're going down with me. So now, he's placing 
a condition on God's command. He's countering God's command with a condition. He will obey God, but only if Deborah goes with him. He hears God's command, and he says yes, but he adds an if at the end. Yes, if. God, I will obey you, but only if you do what I say. Suddenly, God's command has become Barak's command. Have you ever answered God with a yes, if? God, I will obey you if you do this. God, I won't cheat on my test if I know most of the answers to the questions. God, I'll confess my sin to my accountability partners if they ask me. God, I'll pray if I can find the time. Answering God with an if is not a yes. Conditional obedience is disobedience. A yes if is a no. Not only is Barak's yes if a no, it's also an ignorant yes if. In Joshua 11, when King Jabin from Hazor comes, and by the way, he had iron chariots in Joshua 11 too. God gives Joshua the exact same command to go and conquer. In that case, Joshua did not question the Lord at all. Instead, he just obeyed. And throughout the whole chapter, it's described as Joshua's ask, acting, quote, as the Lord told him. He conquered as the Lord told him. He killed as the Lord told him. If God said it to Joshua, it was enough for him. He did it. But what if Joshua was afraid? Well, the Lord commanded him in verse 6 of chapter 11, don't be afraid. So why obey the Lord? Not because he parses out every single reason, but because he explains every single intricate detail of his plan. Why obey the Lord? Because he said so. Because he said so. But Barak doesn't remember what God had done. He doesn't remember what God had said. So Barak is afraid. He tries to create his own insurance policy. If you want to obey the Lord, remember what he's done in the past. Think about God's faithfulness to all who obey him. Think about all the times that the Lord has proven himself to you. That's what we're saying this morning. How we've proved him over and over and over. And God has made his commands clear in his word. He's backed up his own commands with his consistent provision, which means we don't need to test God. We need to trust him. We need to trust him. Barak's yes if reveals himself not to be a man, but to be a child. He's behaving like a boy, like an arrogant kid who thinks that they can barter with their parents and move and negotiate their bedtime. And so the mother of Israel, Deborah, puts Barak in his place. In verse 9, let's read. I will gladly go with you, she said, but you will receive no honor on the road you are about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak's yes if results in him losing his glory. If you kill the leader, you get all the credit. 
You get all the spoils of war. And Deborah tells him that he's going to lose it. God will still use Barak to accomplish his task, but he won't receive particular honor on his way. So God's still going to accomplish his purposes. He's still going to fulfill his promises, but he's going to do it in a peculiar way. And we're going to see that with our second point in today's sermon. See God's deliverance. See God's deliverance. Let's read from verse 9 again. So Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Nephtali to Kadesh. 10,000 men followed him and Deborah went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had moved away from the Kenites, the son of Hobab, Moses' father-in-law, and pitched his tent beside the oak tree of Zahananim, which was near Kadesh. So Deborah prepared for, for battle. And then there's a strange aside about Heber the Kenite, who's living near Kadesh, the enemy where the enemy or, or the area where the enemy was kind of around in terms of location. Now, if you didn't know that the name Heber was a character in the Bible. Here you go. And I wrote in my manuscript to find Heber and point at him and be like, Hi, Heber, you made it! But he's not here. So I can't do that. So, hi, Heber, you made it, man. Okay, verse 12. It was reported to Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera summoned all his 900 iron chariots, and all the troops who were with him from Herosheth of the nations to the Wadi Kaishan. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go! This is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Deborah came down, or so Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Sisera finds out that there are troops in Mount Tabor, so he summons all his army with his overpowered iron chariots and goes to battle next to the Wadi Kaishan River. And then this epic moment happens where Deborah turns to Barak and calls him to go. Lord has gone before him and handed Sisera over to him. But what does that mean? I mean, was Barak just acting in faith? And his Deborah just giving Barak like a, a pep talk for what he's about to do. Because if you look at the structure of the story, what Deborah says in verse 14 to Barak is the peak of the story. This is kind of the epic moment that's supposed to happen. It's supposed to be the aspect of the story that the reader focuses on the most. So was Barak just acting in faith there? Is Deborah telling Barak to just trust the Lord's words that he was doing something? I actually don't think that's the case. I think that God was acting in a visible way at that moment to show Barak that he can fight. And there's clues in the song of Deborah and Barak. And you can see that in verses 1 through 5. Let's read chapter 5, 1 through 5 together. Or verses 4 through 5. It says this. Lord, when you came from Seir, when you marched from the fields of Edom, the earth trembled, the skies poured rain, and the clouds poured water. The mountains melted before the Lord. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. So after the victory, Deborah and Barak are getting together and singing about what God had done. They call back to when the Lord marches from Edom and the earth shakes and the skies rain and the clouds pour water. Which is pretty interesting. I mean, that 
when Deborah and Barak are celebrating what God's doing in their own battle, they're describing a thunderstorm. They're describing a thunderstorm. Clouds are pouring forth water. The earth is shaking. Um, the skies are giving forth water. And you could see that also in chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. The kings came and fought. And the kings of Canaan fought at Taanach by the waters of Megiddo. They did not plunder their silver. The stars, the sky, fought from the heavens. The stars fought with Sisera from their path. The river Kishon swept them away. The ancient river, the river Kishon, march on my soul in strength. So according to this section, the skies or the stars fight against Sisera and the river sweeps them away. So Sisera and his army with their chariots are by this river, the Wadi Kishon. Okay? And suddenly the river gets so large that they're being swept away by the water. So what happened? I think that God went before Barak. That's what I think happened. I think Deborah was telling Barak exactly what Barak was seeing. Barak's name literally means thunder. And the God that he's fighting against Baal is a God of thunder. And what God is doing in a beautiful stroke of irony is he's telling to a faithless man named Thunder to look out and see him use the thunderstorm to fight the God of thunder as he wipes his enemies away. God causes a thunderstorm to pour rain on Sisera and his army. And then the river floods and overtakes his entire army. I mean, imagine 900 iron chariots getting stuck in the mud. That is so cool. Water sweeping away soldiers right before Barak's very eyes. And where else in scripture does God flood his enemies with their chariots and their horses? Yeah, the Exodus. The Exodus. Pharaoh and his army chase after Israel in the Red Sea. And then God drowns them in water. And now what God is doing in this passage, in Judges chapter 4, is he's performing his own redemption again. Redeeming his people from the hands of this pagan King Jabin by flooding his enemies, by sweeping them away in the water. God is performing an Exodus redemption. So God went out before Barak. Barak followed in his conquest. Which means for us, whenever God commands us to obey, he's at work before we do anything. He's at work before we do anything. Uh, this last week, I flew back. I flew to Milwaukee and I went back. It's about, it about an experience in Wisconsin that you expect Wisconsin to be pretty mediocre. But I was on the plane back. And... Uh, I'm stuck in a metal canister propelling through the sky. And usually for Christians, you, you enter this moment of crisis where you're asking yourself whether you're going to share the gospel with the person next to you. And I get airport evangelism anxiety. Uh, and so my rule generally is when the person next to me puts on their headphones, I have the green light, right? They just close themselves off to the gospel. So I put on my headphones, I do my thing, right? So I'm waiting, and the person next to me uh, isn't doing that, uh, and she's sitting next to me, and she seems very sweet, but I'm not saying anything, so I'm just sitting there. I'm having a, an existential spiritual crisis. And then uh, she turns to me and asks me about my phone. And I told her about my phone. I was like, yeah, I like it. She's like, 
wow, it's so big, the screen's so big. I'm like, yeah, I use it for when I preach. She goes, oh, you're a pastor? Uh, I'm like, well, I'm trying to be. I'm thinking, like, is she going to say anything? And then she's like, oh, that's great. And then she puts her headphones on. I'm like, so I put my earphones on. I'm going throughout my day. Towards the end of the flight, as we're descending, she takes off her headphones and asks me again about my phone. So we're like, yeah, it's pretty great and stuff. Yeah, I use it. And then she says, so you're a pastor. I'm like, not yet. I would like to be. And she said, well, tell me more about that. I'd love to hear about you being a pastor. And so I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I tell her and I ask her, like, did you grow up a Christian? Like, what would you say your faith background? She's like, I grew up a Lutheran. I'm like, okay. And I was like, uh, what would you say that the main message of Christianity is? And she said, uh, I don't know. Like, do unto others as, as you would do unto them. Moment of silence. I just sit there nodding as I'm confronting my own idol of comfort. And then she leans into me and she looks me dead in the eyes and she says, it's so interesting. What do you think the main message of Christianity is? I was an idiot. She was godlier than I was in that moment. And I got to share the gospel with her. You can be praying for her. Her name's Jessie. She was very excited to hear about Christianity. She lives in Newport Beach. She's going to buy a copy of What is the Gospel, hopefully, and read it, and then call me. So we're going to hang out at some point. Be praying for that. God was working. I just wasn't looking. Think about it. I mean, seriously, think about it. Where has God gone before you? Where is God sending you? Ephesians 2.10 says that God has good works prepared beforehand for us to do. God has commanded you to obey him in sharing the gospel, in practicing godliness, in loving others. He's predestined good works from the beginning of time for us to participate in. We have the privilege of seeing where God is moving or trusting that he's moving and acting in them. And sometimes that means that we don't see things clearly. But when we don't, we trust that God's working all things together for his good. Go. Haven't you seen The Lord has gone before you. And so Barak and his army charged down Mount Tabor into battle. I don't have a ton of time, so I'm just going to have to describe the story to you. And not a single one is left. They have complete victory. But before Barak could kill Sisera and claim total victory, Sisera gets away. It describes him. Sisera runs away on foot, presumably, because his chariot was lost in the water and the mud, which is kind of embarrassing. He's just kind of running away naked, so to speak. It flees on foot all the way to the house of Heber the Kenite. And it turns out Heber, even though he's supposed to be a loyal Israelite, has struck an alliance with King Jabin. Heber, you're not a good guy in the Bible, man. And what's ironic about this is that Heber's name literally means alliance. So Heber strikes an alliance with this pagan king. And so Sisera goes into Heber's tent seeking refuge. And this story is just super ironic. Like every aspect of the story is just filled with contradictions. Sisera's name translates to child. So a child goes into alliance's tent. And J.L. treats child like a mother. Covers him with a blanket. Gives him milk to drink. Encourages him to sleep. 
But rather than nurturing this child and, and, and nursing him to health, Jael instead takes a tent peg and drives it through the child's head. Sisera's alliance ends with betrayal. The child goes to a mother only to be killed. This is like peak irony. That's what this story is. And everything that Sisera pl- did was according to his plan. Right? He had every military advantage over Barak. He had iron chariots. He had a bigger army. He was ready to fight. He had a more robust military. And he even had an escape plan with his alliance with Heber the Kenite to have a place that he can go run away and find refuge. And yet every single plan that Sisera makes completely fails. Our best attempts at security are nothing compared to the might of the king of glory. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I wonder what you are placing your hope in. God may seem as absurd to you as it did to Barak. But if you're looking for true hope, if you're looking for true security, there's no safer place to be than under the care of the Lord Almighty. And even when obeying him may seem absurd, we as believers have a hope beyond anything that this world can hurl at us, even in death. Talk more about that later. Barak sees the Lord's work and conquered, albeit without honor. Sisera trusted in himself and is destroyed because of it. Which brings us to our last point. Celebrate God's victory. Celebrate God's victory. In light of God's deliverance, Deborah and Barak break out into song. They celebrate their victory. This is like the Old Testament equivalent of We Are the Champions by Queen. But what it also shows us is a model of how to praise God in light of what he's done. So we're going to take a look at a few things. Um, we'll read the first part. I'll just kind of gloss over the other aspects. But look at chapter 5, verse 1. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang, When the leaders lead in Israel, when the people volunteer, blessed be the Lord. This is kind of the thesis statement of everything that they have been talking about. When leaders lead well, when people volunteer, there's reason to praise God. The first thing that Deborah and Barak praise God for isn't his miraculous deeds. It isn't the other destruction of the enemy. It's the people's obedience. They praise God because leaders actually led. They praise God for people who actually obey. I'm sure some of you parents can relate If a kid finally does what you say, and you say, thank God. Bethany Baptist Church, you obey well. And I thank God for you. And pastors, I have been honored to follow you, and I praise God for you. You realize how rare a thing it is to have leaders that you can trust and follow? And for leaders, you realize how rare it is to have people that joyfully follow you, who obey the Lord, who seek to honor him. This is a precious thing. We are witnessing nothing short of a miracle here this morning, sitting through this long, now 50-plus-minute sermon. 
listening to God's word, seeking to obey him together. That's a cause for praise. Deborah and Barak then proceed to praise God for what he's done, and he does it from, and they do it from three angles. Firstly, they, they praise God for his acts. Praise God for his acts. So they begin to describe using poetic language all the things that God has done. And they praise the Lord. They also praise God for the battle. So in verses 12 through 23, they, they start going into vivid detail about how God delivered the Israelites in battle. And they praise God for it. And the last thing, and the thing that we're going to focus on for the rest of the sermon, is that they also praise God for the defeat of their enemies. And it cuts this interesting interlude of Sisera's mom. So let's read that from verse 24. Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. She is most blessed among tent-dwelling women. He asked for water. She gave him milk. She brought him cream in a majestic bowl. She reached for a tent peg, her right hand for a workman's hammer. Then she hammered Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. He collapsed. He fell. He lay down between her feet. He collapsed. He fell between her feet. Where he collapsed, there he fell dead. Sister's mother looked through the window. She peered through the lattice, crying out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why do I hear the hoofbeats of his horses? Her wisest princesses answer. She even answers herself. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil? A girl or two for each warrior? The spoil of colored garments for Sisera? The spoil of an embroidered garment or two for my neck? Lord, may all your enemies perish as Sisera did. May those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its strength. There's something off-putting about celebrating the death of an image bearer like this. I mean, it's like time slows down. It's almost like the slow motion scenes that you see in the Justice League in terms of the hammer moving and then crushing Cicero's head and then it falls like three times, instant replay, over and over again. They are really dwelling on this. It's not just a necessary consequence of what happened. They are celebrating the death of this man. And there's something in us that, that might feel off about that, that makes us feel uncomfortable with that. So there's a few things for us to note as we, as we think about this kind of strange description of what's going on with Cicero here. The first thing is that Cicero was not a good guy. Cicero was not a good guy. I mean, think about it. The way that the women comfort Cicero's mom as she waits is the thought that Cicero must have won is out pillaging and abusing women. That's her comfort. Cicero isn't exactly an innocent victim. He's an evil man. Secondly, justice should be enacted on evil. Justice should be enacted on evil. That's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing for justice to be enacted on evil. And thirdly, God alone is the perfect judge. God alone is the perfect judge. And God enacts justice perfectly. And he punished Sisera exactly the way he deserved. The reason why we may hesitate to have such kind of terrible judgments on individuals is because our sense of justice isn't always perfect. We get it wrong. Governments can also get it wrong. 
And we need to have space for that kind of error when we think about society as we seek to pursue justice together. At the same time, God's justice is perfect. There's no question mark behind what had happened to Sisera. Sisera got exactly what he deserved. But when we think about ourselves, we may also view ourselves to be terribly wicked. We think about it. We cower like Barak. And we are just as worthy of condemnation as Sisera because of our sin. So where do we turn? We turn to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, this is the main message of Christianity. This is what we would call the gospel. That God is a holy, good God. And he created us to enjoy and obey him. But instead of obeying him, we disobeyed and we rebelled against him. It's because of our disobedience that we deserve right justice, just like Sisera. All of heaven would celebrate that God enacted perfect justice on us as he throws us into hell. But God, in his kindness, instead of sending punishment, sent his son, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. And he lived the perfect life that we never could. And Jesus himself stood on the same mountain that Barak did, Mount Tabor. And Jesus revealed himself in the transfiguration, in all of his resplendent glory. And he went down from Mount Tabor into battle. But the battle that Jesus fought wouldn't be against flesh and blood. He would not put a single sword against you or I. Instead, Jesus would put the hammer of justice on himself. Pinned on the cross. Thorns on his temple. God's wrath was poured out on him instead of us. Jesus was immersed into the seas of death. He died the death that we deserve to die. But on the third day, he rose from that sea victorious over sin and death. And he reigns right now at the right hand of the Father. Which means that if you turn from your sin and you trust in him, you will not receive judgment that you rightly deserve. Instead, you'll receive eternal life and joy. And that's precisely why we can praise him. We can praise God for his work in us. We can thank God for his mighty acts. And we can thank God for crushing the head of sin beneath his feet, trampling sin and death forever. If you have your bulletin, go ahead and look at page, uh, or the page after the sermon. Page 14, 13. Page 13. Look at verse 3. We get to join in the chorus of Deborah and Barak as they celebrate God's redemption. Then on the third, at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. O trampled death, where is your sting? The angels roar. 
for Christ the King. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We marvel at your mighty acts. We thank you that you sent Christ down to put sin to death through his mighty act on the cross. Lord, we are so grateful for his work. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.